Here's an experiment for you. Take passionate experts in human resource technology. Invite cross-industry experts from inside and outside HR. Mix in what's happening in people analytics today. Give them the technology to connect. Hit record. Pour their discussions into a beaker. Mix thoroughly and voila. You get the HR Data Labs podcast, where we explore the impact of data and analytics to your business. We may get passionate and even irreverent, but count on each episode challenging and enhancing your understanding of the way people data can be used to solve real-world problems. Now, here's your host, David Turetsky. Hello and welcome to the HR Data Labs podcast. I'm your host, David Turetsky, and welcome again to the HR Tech Conference HR Data Labs podcast. As always, I have with me Dwight Brown. Hey, Dwight, how are you? Hey, David. You? Awesome. And we have with us a special, very special guest today. We've been trying to get Al Adamson on the HR Data Labs for quite some time. We tracked him down. We ran after him. We tracked him down at the conference floor, and we got him here today. So we have Al Adamson from PAFOW. We are so excited to talk to you today. How are you? I'm doing outstanding. David Dwight, thanks for having me. It is completely a pleasure. So, Al, tell us a little bit about your background and tell us how you started PAFOW and what it is. Well, uh, PAFOW, PAFOW, stands for People Analytics and Future of Work. And when I came up with the naming convention, I did not know it would become Pafau because it sounds like, you know, the Batman thing, <laughs> you know, but uh, after cringing for, uh, you know, a couple of few months, I just embraced it. People yeah. had a smile on their face when yeah. they said it. So yeah. that was roughly 2014, 2015. Really? And so without going too deep into the whole history, I was a practitioner in this space in the early 2000s. So I created the quote unquote people analyst capability at Gap Inc. Okay. Uh, it was then called Human Capital Analytics. Fast forward, we rebranded ourselves Employee Insights. From Gap, I joined a vendor that was serving us there, Inform or Info HRM. Yep. And they were acquired by SuccessFactors a yep. couple years later. I had gone on to Conexa to create a workforce analytics practice. And there in 2008, give or take, right. you know, the world's falling down and uh, you know the yeah. idea of strategic use of data wasn't a priority I and mean, yeah. people were just keeping the wheels on the bus at that time i made a conscious decision in my career given the stage of my kids to facilitate peer groups my kids were eight and uh, six at the time roughly and so i you know i, I want to be around with yeah. them at that stage, and I don't want to be flying all over as a consultant. So right. uh, in partnership with Brian Hackett uh, of the Learning Forum, we sure. created a workforce planning council, a workforce analytics council, did that for a number of years, started speaking at a number of events around the country. And with our council, we were asked to bring in vendors occasionally, say, hey, what are they doing? What are they right. doing? What are they right. doing? And then we said, well, what would it be like if we, you know, joined a conference with these vendors and with the peer group right. and it's like oh well now we got an event yeah. and then we started to think well there's got to be some naming convention they're going to put a stake in the ground and right. we call it something and that's Pavao. so just to bring that home Pavao, given covid and we had done events in San Francisco for a number of years, Philadelphia, London, Sydney, as COVID hit in early 2020. And now we're 
pretty much a media company. So we wow. have an online show. We do online learning experiences, uh, both live and on demand. Right. And I have a podcast, as you know, uh, People Data for Good. And so I put a stake in the ground around that naming convention, that mantra. Right. And that it has a definition. It's promoting the ethical and responsible use of people data, analytics, and AI for the benefit of individuals, first and foremost. Right teams, groups, including diversity groups, organizations, and society at large. So I'm passionate about it, obviously, yes. uh, you know, going on 20 years in the space. Uh, I have a background in economics. I was a consultant with Ernst & Young. So I think systematically, I think about systems. And uh, probably the most important attribute that I carry, at least I like to think, is I come in with a beginner's mindset, a growth mindset, be really curious and compassionate about where the world is, where individuals are as they struggle and try and, you know, do what they do. Well, thank you very much for doing all that. I really appreciate it because we care about the practitioners, we care about the employees, and we care that the function of HR learns about what it is to actually be able to measure outcomes and be able to relate that to their business. So thank you for everything you do. So, Al, we have to put you on the spot. What's one thing that no one knows about you? <laughs> uh, it's funny because I was asked this question uh, a couple of days ago, and I was surprised by my answer, and I feel like I should give a different answer. <laughs> so um, uh, I'll say this is that I am an avid beach volleyball player, um, and I love beach volleyball because I get to – hang out with people who are old and young, men, women, boys, girls, people from all over the world. So I travel in my job professionally. And and so I've played in tournaments in Australia and played in Europe. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's a wonderful community. And I feel very blessed at this stage of my life to be able to do that and something I can do with my kids. So, yeah, that's something that having grown up, played football, basketball, track, you know, here I am playing beach volleyball on most weekends. And most people, when I ask them about sports and we're not young anymore, they say, yeah, I did it until. And I play hockey and and I play hockey twice a week. So it's it's good that you have that competitive thing still. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Life long athlete and yeah. uh, to your point have, I play college football that's something people don't know either I don't show we up got that way the thing is I call football a terminal sport you walk off the field the last time you're done yeah. you don't go to a yeah, park yeah. and say hey you want to play pickup football <laughs> you don't do that uh, but with volleyball it's something you know, like I said it's extremely inclusive it's fun and, so, yeah. and you need a ball and you need a net Yeah, you don't need pads. (laughs) That's really cool. So the beautiful part about your background is, especially how it all came together is, then this should resonate with our listeners, is then you have great context for people analytics and the past and how we used to do it and where it's come from and then how that translates from a context perspective to what we're doing today. And then you've heard everybody talk and you've talked to about, and of course you've talked about this, where is the future of it going? So let's start with context. Tell us what your thoughts are when I ask you, where has people analytics come from? Whether it's origin stories that you have or 
what your th- thoughts are around where it came from. Well, for those who want a quick history lens a lesson, I wrote an article a few years ago called People Analytics 3.0, where it actually 1.0 was effectively event-based research. So I want to figure something out. Therefore, I'm going to go and grab all this data, create a hypothesis, test it against the data, and then present that in a deck. And, you know, it's like defending a dissertation. And so if that is, in fact, people analytics, that's been going on for 100 plus years. Yeah. And so, you know, Hawthorne studies and all that. Was that, depends on how you define people analytics, right? Sure. Then people on 2.0 aligns with what I would call the business intelligence revolution, where in the early 90s, you had Cognos and Brio and Hyperion and other technologies that were aggregating data from all across the enterprise, including HR. And at the time, Norton and Kaplan of Harvard Business School came out with the balanced scorecard. It was effectively, okay, we're going to manage a business through these four lenses, a financial lens, a customer market lens, internal operation lens, and what they call the learning and growth lens or quadrant. And I'm like, all right, cool. And at the time, I was with Ernst & Young, and, and we were building some services around this model. And I kept looking at the learning and growth quadrant. I'm like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> as much as I read and like talk to clients and try and figure this out. So me being me, I said, I'm going to change that. And I'm going to call it leaders, managers in the workforce. And who are they? Well, they're the customers of HR. Right. And so HR has all these processes and things that they do. And who sets the agenda for HR? Well, leadership. So now we have this causal framework. Right. So, and then, it's, you know, is there data along these relationships across that framework? Right. Yes, and yes, and yes. And so without going through that whole model, the business intelligence promise wasn't really delivered, particularly for HR, given the uniqueness of HR data. Yeah. So now you come into the early 2000s and... There was a group out of Australia, Inform, yep. Info HRM. Yep. At the same time, Jack Vizenz, yep. you know, the Saratoga Institute, yep. they were creating tools, solution models where, okay, this is the way it can be done. Now there's solutions that are being brought to market that actually do this. So the core value proposition there was taking HR data or people data, as we now call it, aggregated on an event-driven basis, but on a recurring basis, rather, and presenting it through dashboards with user rights and so forth, which is now pretty commonplace. However, at that time, we would send, uh, at the time when I was at at Gap, we would send, inform our supplier data once a quarter. You know how long it took for them to refresh that data? Six months. No, roughly 21 days, three weeks. So you're talking about, okay, after three weeks, you know, who was interested in that data? No one. No one. No one. And so we worked, so we've got to do this monthly. We've got to get the refresh rate down to five days, you know, and now that refresh is almost daily, almost instantaneous. Let me ask you a question about the, because when it was first created, and I had actually worked on some dashboard projects a long, long time ago as a practitioner. One of the comments that some of the managers said is, why are you sending me this stuff? Mm-hmm. I never asked for it. It's not giving me any value. Yeah. And they were right. We were sending them the trend of headcount mm-hmm. in bar charts. And not that a bar chart versus a line graph make matters. But they said, tell me something insightful about my business. Yeah. Don't just show me headcount. Yeah, okay, sometimes headcount can relate to cost, but 
what do I do with this? What are the answers? What are the outcomes? And it took us decades to try and make that leap. And of course, we're talking about the past now. But I, I guess I asked you, because you did this as a practitioner, did you provide training to your managers? Did you give them the why yeah. when you did that? Well, this is a something that I'm very passionate about because I see the world, and I say this compassionately, not critically, is kind of uh, backwards on this. And let me explain what I mean, is that, okay, we're generating this insight, and we're going to go train people on how to communicate that insight downstream. I find that largely backwards. It's like if we are doing our jobs as people, analytics professionals, we're actually going to our internal customer first, identifying what they want or need, and then creating a product for that appetite for right. the, for that need right. and, and as opposed to the big aha yeah, so. but that's a more modern concept though because right. in the past when i worked as comp uh, with hris i asked them for a, a bunch of data i would put it together into these elaborate graphs and charts and i used to do a roll-up of how much compensation did we need for the CFO to get to the median 75th percentile. And I'd give him numbers and he'd be like, wow, I need to pay that much money to get us to the median? Yes. And, and that was a pointed one. That's where I listened to him and I did it. But there were a lot of times when it would be, we would push out, we'd ask HR for data and we'd push out information and the manager would come back and say, why? Yeah, exactly. No, I, I love where you went on that because there's, again, a couple nuances that need to be appreciated because if i'm going to create a solution whether it be an automated solution or just a deliverable that they use for a board meeting i want to know what they need to know what's going to yeah as early as possible so i can craft you know towards that end that being said one of the things i strongly advocate for hr business partners or any change agent is go to your ultimate decision maker your internal customer and Ask you know how they view the world. What are their sets of hypotheses, right. and also be attentive to what they're asking for or what they're, what they're not, not asking, asking for, for exactly. that they should be asking for. Right. Because we still have to bring our domain expertise and our innovations to the fore. So yeah, it is in fact you know a, a two way street. So that is something that you know takes creativity. It takes courage. It takes you know obviously domain expertise and. The good news is, I mean, with the proliferation of data that's available now and the quality of the analytical tools, I mean, we can provide insights that, you know, leaders did not grow up with. They don't know it exists, you know, so that's really exciting for us as analytics professionals. The the one thing I want to come back to real quick before we get too far afield, and you touched on it, David, is that these dashboards and metrics that we were pushing out and people on X2.0, they would go out and like, well, so what? Yeah. You know, what, what am I yeah. supposed to do with it? Right. And in the early 2000s, John Boudreau and, and others, and I had the great pleasure of working with John uh, at the Center for Effective Organizations when I was in Rolla Gap. He and others were putting forth this curve where you're going to do reporting and then you're going to do descriptive analytics and you're downstream, you're going to get to predictive. And then, yeah. you know, over the years, I would say, well, who's there at predictive? No one. Well, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. And so I was kind of up in arms and I love John. I have immense respect for him on many, many levels, personal and and professional. I also was calling something out that I saw as a practitioner is that we need to do advanced analytics earlier in the game to actually create 
the story around what these metrics mean. Sure. You know, that just doesn't happen because you know, we wish it to happen. There, we yeah. can bring data. We can do, uh, you know, not to put my geek hack on, on, but, you know, structural equation modeling. We can do any number of analytical application disciplines, techniques, that is, yeah. to better understand the historical impact of a set of metrics and the potential future impact sure. uh, of, of a set of metrics. So that combination of both doing the advanced analytics along with the dashboarding and so forth, I became an evolution like in the, the knots, if you will. <laughs> and, sure, sure. and then well, I'll wrap this up is over the last 10 years or so, yeah, people have been talking machine learning, AI, and all that. But I, what people on 3.0 to me is, is really operationalizing analytics, not only for executives, but for people leaders as well as individuals themselves, exactly. which gets really exciting because, after all, they're generating the data. And yeah. We can get into this whole ethical discussion about who owns the data at the end of the day and where the world is going with that. But I'm just really happy that we're at this stage yeah. and we're the level of discussion is very appropriate uh, around okay whose data is it you know why are we doing this should we do this so i'm excited well i think one of the things you're going to see that's happening now it's not a future thing is transparency mm. companies need to be more transparent the sec is forcing it to public companies and that'll then happen to private companies as well because people will say i want to gravitate toward where i feel appropriate and i like knowing more than not knowing. And so transparency to me becomes more of a democratic or democratization of not just data, but of the end result of data, the insights that are being generated exactly to your point. Because if we just think about one group, the leader or the executive, and we forget about the managers and the employees, then we're going to have a difference in understanding and not perfect information. And there's going to be generating a lot of demand then from those other two groups to get it. And people are going to normally flow to where they feel. Anyways, I, no, I, I love it. I, I, I cite what um, yeah, Salesforce does. They do not do turnover predictions because they don't believe that it's going to elevate trust. They have a trust metric. If, it, if it's going to compromise trust in any way, we're not going to do it. And so they have governance structures around that. So I celebrate that. Microsoft similar is that they have a trust center. So anything that is going to compromise the trust of the worker and how their data is going to be used, they're not going to do it. So having those guardrails and the fortitude to say no, not only individually, but systematically right. because of rules, right. I think is a, a great thing, but not many organizations have that level of discipline. Obviously, Microsoft Absolutely. and right. Salesforce are special cases. So. The, the one thing I want to add to that one point is then the level of data integrity gets higher because people will know what their data is or have a, a hand in agreeing to update their data and it will be better for everybody. And they might even desire, yeah. you know, and, you know, hey, I'm getting, I'm benefiting. And it's not yeah. only for the organization, I'm getting benefit and my peers are benefiting. So I have a kind of citizen responsibility exactly. and not only to the organization, but to myself, right. you know, so I can be seen. I mean, we know that, Oh, my talent profile in you know my core HR. There's only 26 percent you know filled out. Right. You know why? Because they don't have confidence right. that they're going to be found. It's going to be used for a virtuous purpose. Whereas, okay, who's going to update their LinkedIn profile if they are going to be looking for a job? And we know that they're going to do that if they're a knowledge worker. So because they trust the system, they they see the personal benefit as well as the you know organizational benefit.
Well, one of those benefits, and we've been talking about this with a few of the guests over the last couple of days, is skill profiling and then career career frameworks mm-hmm. that enable them to understand where they could go. Mm-hmm. If the person doesn't have all of their data filled out on their talent profile, then the career framework can't really represent what would be the appropriate ways they could go. And I'm not talking like predicting it. I'm saying that if I don't know what skills you have, I can't tell you what gaps to fill in order to get to that other career. Even if it might be right next to me, I may not know because I don't know what you do have and what the, what, what the assessment would, would be testing for. So now let's transition from the past to today. What are you seeing people do and how is people analytics or has, how has it changed from the past to right this very moment? What examples, and you don't have to mention empl- um, employer names if you don't want to, yeah. but where have you seen and what have you seen that gives you happiness, sadness, depression? <laughs> what have you seen that's giving you those emotions around where people analytics is today? <laughs> What makes me sad, I'll start there, is that there's still uh, business cases that have to be created to justify investments in people analytics. I, I find that absurd. It's like, you know, who created a business case for market analytics, you know, to understand customers? I mean, in my mind, workers are the customers of leadership. Yeah. And do you as a leader want to understand your customers, those you're serving? Right. If you're truly a servant leader, yeah, yeah you, I would think you do. And you not only do you want it on a you know one-off basis because there's a problem, you want that to be a way of doing things. That yeah. means you have systems and processes and technology and data and analytical engines that generate insight so you can actually see not only where you've been but where you're likely headed. Right. And that is a matter not only of responsibility in my view – but it is a matter that, or opportunity rather, but it's a matter of responsibility. Do you, do you think there's a missing or misunderstanding that they think that there's something happening around maybe workforce planning and that's enough? Or what's the disconnect between executives and people on the I, I think there's two things. I, I think they grew up without it. So I have been doing this for 30 years. You know, I got, I'm going to retire in five years. You know, I, yeah, I'm, I'm all right. You know, it's going to be somebody right. else's problem. That's kind of the cynic in me, you know, coming out, but I've seen it long enough to kind of believe in some organizations that that's in fact, you know, the case because what people analytics does, it creates accountability where accountability did not exist before. Right. I have seen leaders suppress insight because it did not reflect well on them or, or others. Look at DE&I. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And there's been a lot of excuse-making around it. So it takes a evolved, courageous leader to say, this is the way we're going to do things. On the good news, the adoption of people analytics technologies and the commissioning of people analytics professionals to do this work is going up. And it's actually gone up significantly over the past year with COVID because of the focus on well-being, yeah. retention, and all that. It's like, oh, what the heck's going on? Well, <laughs> yeah. I, I got to, well, how, uh, what do you mean we can't spin up that survey and do this analysis? Right. Well, we don't have anybody to do it. And you know, so am I going to you know, outsource that? Do I want that person in-house? So the operating models to get this work done are, have evolved. You know, particularly, they've accelerated significantly over um, the past uh, 
12 months. What I will say, and this is hovering between the current and, and, and short, near-term future states, is that the idea that people analytics is a luxury and that it's something that we'll eventually get to is going away. They understand the essential nature of this work. I just don't think there's a broad understanding of what that actual work looks like. Yeah. And some are scared of it. Some have said, oh, I'm going to hire a data scientist and hey, yeah. you start doing stuff. Yeah. And they don't have ample resources to actually do their work. Right. Where I'll land with this is it was really interesting to hear Josh Burson speak uh, day before yesterday. Or yesterday. It was yesterday. He did not say the words people analytics. He did not put those two words together. He did not say digital transformation. Yeah, go back two years. I mean, people and looks was a full segment. And, you know, digital transformation was something we're all, and obviously COVID accelerated that. But I call that out not in like, Josh, what are you doing? I actually celebrate it because people and looks is becoming embedded in a lot of the technologies that are being adopted now. And that doesn't mean, in the way I view it, it's like, you know, we don't have electrical conferences, you know, conferences on electricity, <laughs> but we use it and we there's still a role for electricians. And that's kind of what, in my view, our people and electric professionals are going to be, is that they're going to be the experts to know how to put in the wires and make sure everything yeah, works. Yeah. And if something breaks down, they're going to go in and fix it. And if we're going to expand another wing to this building, then yeah. they're going to be able to connect everything and they're going to think systematically. But the work is not going to go away ever. It's just a way of doing things moving right. forward. So, I, Josh, I love you, but about four or five, maybe five or six years ago, he did a maturity model around people analytics where he talked about reporting analytics <laughs> well, the reason why, because I was building the data cloud at the time for ADP, and when we were designing it, we were designing it based on the needs that our clients had, and so reporting was a huge concept still, because basically most of our clients would build a lot of their analytics starting with reporting because they, they trusted those queries, they knew where the data was coming from, and then we had built an analytical platform that was standardized across every client. And to get them to transition was big. And he was coming out and saying, descriptive analytics are passe. You know, you need to go and do, you know, um, not to, uh, predictive analytics, but prescriptive. And most of our clients we see are going to prescriptive. And I said, what's wrong with my company then that, you know, and we, and it was ADP at the time, you know, we had thousands and thousands of clients and they were all still in reporting. And I had to transition that conversation with them to say, there's nothing wrong with reporting. There's nothing wrong with descriptive statistics. Yes, you might want to get to prescriptive, uh, predictive or prescriptive, but don't fear that Josh is saying this. And again, Josh, I love you, but I think it was a little premature to even talk about predictive and prescriptive because there are a lot of clients who are still in the reporting world and still today are. And I'm talking six years ago. And so I don't like talking about maturity models because... You can't make that. It just. May, may, may I talk to that real quick? Of course. So I have, for 15 years, I've had what I call an analytics maturity progression. And I use those words intentionally because, yeah, we can say that I'm just playing with words uh, and it's, in fact, a maturity model. But it's not that you leave one 
and just go to the other. Right. It, it's an and, and yeah. I call that out, is that reporting is always going to exist. You're going to always have descriptive statistics. And predictive has never been the goal for me. It's the appropriate insight at the appropriate time. I, like We talk about analytics. Analytics is a process. Our product, our deliverable is insight. Leaders could give a rat's tail how it's produced. So they just want it to be accurate. They just want it to be accurate. They want to trust it. And and even with predictive and prescriptive, I mean, whenever I hear it, I go like this because (laughs) I it's like we're not doing analytics for analytics' sake. It's not for the sake of the you know researcher or or, or, you know analytics professional. It's for our customer and predictive analytics is based on what's called in statistics the frequentist approach. So I have a bunch of historical data. Yeah. I'm going to analyze all of this, yeah. and it's going to predict what's going to happen in the future. What does that do? That assumes the past, past is good. <laughs> the past was good, and that's, what, the past. and that's what we desire in the future. And you know, particularly in this yeah. rate of change, we don't. It doesn't allow for disruption. And prescriptive is like actually blind predictive analytics. It's not, it's not entering the human in. Yeah. So I really, I caution people who just use those terms because they've seen it in a book somewhere yeah. or, or seen it in a maturity model. And say, so I, I don't even want to have that. The, the, just to throw those words at me. Right. And that's why when I talk to people, especially on the floor, and they talk about how the AI is doing or will do, and I say, look at the basis for what the AI is looking at. Have you gone through and made sure that it corrects for history? Because history sucks. Sorry, but history sucks. And if you guys haven't gone through your data, especially with a fine-tooth comb, looking at some of the decisions that have been made in the past, especially around promotions, opportunities, where you're giving hours out, to whom and why, um, who's, who is and who is not getting promoted, um, and why, or who's leaving and why, then my advice is, you know, don't use your past. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by Turetsky Consulting and listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. Can I talk about the future? Let's talk about the future. Because that sets the stage for what I and excited about that I see here on the floor more and more because having done the work, I had been content or just had blind acceptance of the data that was available to me to do the work. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was like trying to make magic out of something that was, you know, I'm trying to make a gourmet meal with, you know, stuff, ingredients that, were very basic and just weren't going to get me where I wanted yeah. to go. And so that's kind of how most people analytics professionals have existed since we really started to form a discipline. And what I'm seeing that excites me is that we're now getting in front of the challenge. In other words, why are HR technologies adopted in most organizations? You know, any yeah, it depends on the organization size and complexity, of course. Uh, but let's say they have 30 information systems that touch yeah. an employee, a worker. They all generate data. Okay, we're going to aggregate that data and we're going to analyze it. And we're going to you know, produce deliverables, produce dashboards, all these things. Okay, we're doing people and <laughs> analytics. But I wasn't, as a people analytics professional, involved in the selection of those technologies. Those technologies, by and large, were 
implemented or selected and implemented to stand up a process or improve right. a process. Right. They weren't done because right. leaders wanted to know something right. you know, different nine out of ten times. So what's the better solution? Well, if I'm a people analytics leader, someone who's involved in not only the analytical process, but the identification of what I call appropriate data, then I'm going to be involved in the technology selection. Yes. I'm going to be involved in the process design to ensure that the data that I need is being generated so I can then consume it, analyze it, generate the insight, and push it downstream. So that's what I see happening more and more. I, I, I package it like this. Appropriate questions lead to appropriate technologies, which leads to appropriate data, which leads to appropriate insights, which leads to appropriate action. I use this term appropriate, obviously, yeah. intentionally, right. because appropriate starts with appropriate questions from a change agent, call it people on leader, HR business partner, whomever, to that end customer, right. internal customer. And again, going back to what we talked about before, what are he or she saying? What are they not saying? Right. And then go you know, designing processes, that data architecture, that, that technology uh, ecosystem yeah. to generate this stuff that doesn't happen on accident you know so that consciously conscious creation of the ecosystem and the underlying data i see that more and more which is a fantastic thing i would love to see that continue and the, the final thing i'll say on that uh, point is you know surveys used to be you know once a year once every other year and now they're going quarterly and now that in covid you know there's almost continuous dialogue continuous listening you know with workers you know for the sake of what you know, what does that data get juxtaposed? What's the nature of those questions? And being really thoughtful, you know, again, appropriate. What, what are you trying to achieve? And are you actually having a discussion with your workforce at scale that's not only meaningful, but actionable? Right. That they see it, that they have confidence that they're, okay, we're going places and they're looking out for me. And we're going to succeed as an organization business-wise and good things are going to happen. So. And I think right now there's such disruption in the business world, whether it's COVID and working at home, whether it's the great resignation, and we've had lots of discussions about yeah, that, yeah. This, or whether it's the changing work profile. And yes, this is kind of like another thing that we've talked about for years where gig economy versus not and whatever. Listening to your employees and being able to change the culture or the espouse culture is critical. You will lose your brain trust if you're not listening to them in a way that enables you to be able to react. Yeah. You can't. I'll tell you a quick story. At Morgan Stanley in 19, I think it was 1994, the CEO said, we will not do casual Friday. When Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, all of our competitors were introducing casual Friday. It's an investment bank, you know. Remember barbarians at the gate, you know, tie suit every day, everyone. And the lower level people wore cheaper suits, and the upper level wore the most expensive suits from the best tailors. Mm -hmm. And the backlash that they faced in a matter of moments because of all the people who said this better change, it started as a groundswell that they actually changed and reacted. It took weeks. That doesn't happen anymore. The immediate backlash because of social media is immediate. And so I guess the question back to you is, is that are there the back channels like social media or is this happening through us asking 
and, and people listening and having those mechanisms to listen, like engagement studies? Yeah, it's both. It's both. Uh, and there's so much around, how do I say, the well-being of an individual and how that at scale relates to the culture of the organization. So I have an article that I wrote years ago called Feedback is Garbage. And it's effectively a challenge to define what feedback is. And what I advocate, either defining feedback as such or just calling it something different, is OQIs, observations, questions, and ideas. Because I believe people after the basics want three things. They want to be seen, they want to be heard, and they want to be empowered. You know, they don't want to be invisible. They don't want to be ignored. And they want right. to be told what to do. Right. You know, they want to be empowered, offered right. ideas and things right. like that. So if I feel heard by responding to a survey or having a discussion in a focus group or something like that, or if I put something out in social media, I see that there is a mechanism by which to see the tone of the chatter. And, oh, man, and there's a great story at IBM where Uber and Lyfts weren't reimbursable. And there was a big uproar about that. And they actually caught that in social media chatter. I think it was internal chat, but whatever. You know, they, they were then able to see it and act on it. That's great. And so that's it, you know, listening and having the uh, fortitude to act quickly. So, you know, that I would hope in years to come is going to become the norm. But many are not taking advantage of those, you know, technologies. What I will say to, and I'd be interested in your thoughts as well, is when we talk about appropriate data, I'm interested in not only the skills, because skills is getting a lot of play on the floor here, but two other things. Capacity, because we're all constrained by time, and there's a lot of people who are suffering, and we as people analytics professionals have the wherewithal to shine a light on that suffering as well as what to do to alleviate it. And so... I also am interested in the intentions and capturing the intentions of individuals. And there's some vendors who are getting at that too. It's like, hey, I have you know my kids in in school, and I want to you know be around and coach their teams, or I have, I'm taking care of an elder parent or something like that. Yeah. Doesn't mean I'm less of a performer. It right. means I got other things going on in my life. So I, I would really love for us to listen to workers in a very compassionate way as opposed to all about productivity. And that is going to elevate trust and commitment to the organization as well. So, Remember in the past, as HR, we don't care about what people do in their homes. Mm -hmm. We can't ask them as a manager. You can't ask about them. You can't ask about their relationships. You can't ask personal questions. Not on hire and certainly not regular conversations because the decisions you make may either disenfranchise or, or support people in the wrong way. Like someone says, my mother's sick, I need money, is there any way I can get an advance? Well, a compassionate manager may do that one-off, but then also puts the company at risk. And so we used to not do that, and we used to not allow that. But I think what we're seeing now, after COVID, is maybe the equations changed, and maybe we have ways of being able to do things differently now, still within the law, as compassionate people to be able to change that. I don't know. Back to the other question you asked. And so I guess I, I guess I don't know yeah. that one. But the other question you asked about, about time and, and how can we measure 
how much time people are actually spending. It is a cop-out. And I will call HR and IT to the table on this if they said they didn't know. Mm -hmm. We know when people are working. We know it from their logins. We know it from the, the messaging systems, which know when you're available and when you're not. If you go and touch your space bar, we know. So it's horse crap to say that we don't know unless somebody punches the clock, we don't know when they're working and they're not. That is a foul of a lot of different things, but it's also it's disingenuous to say unless someone puts in their time card, I don't know what their time is, yes or no. And I think that we've done a lot of ONA on emails, right? And that ONA is very valuable. Have we ever done anything to say if you send an email at 10 o'clock at night that that was working time? I mean, I, I don't know. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, that's great. Has it ever gone back to Kronos for getting payment? <laughs> for an hourly worker, that's actually a great question. I don't have an answer right now. What I will say is this, is that we, to your point, have the ability to access such data and juxtapose it against all kinds of other data, performance data, engagement data, you know, on down the line. Um, should we do that? For what purpose? I mean, what are the ethics? You know, how does it impact you know different groups, diversity groups? You know, I'm thinking the nature of people analytics has expanded way beyond you know surveys and comp data and you know org design. Yeah, we have access to that data. I believe that we can do a lot of great things with that data. And this relates to uh, workforce planning. It relates to the work that I'm doing around the future of work. I'm talking a lot now about what I'm calling perpetual work design. Some call it perpetual work transformation or you know, the, the fact that we're always designing the organization, you know, and we can't, okay, this is the way we're structured and this is the way we're going to move hey, forward. Let's go. You know, but, but, but using data to inform, okay, we have, you know, X number of employees, we're going to have Y number of contractors, in fact, but over the next year, we're going to outsource this, which means we're going to free up these employees and they're going to yeah, the ability to be repositioned to do you know, something else. So we're going to think about the training that we're going to apply. Yeah. You know, that, uh, not to mention, oh, we're going to have uh, robotic automation take over this process and that's going to free up the capacity of others. And so what are they going to do moving forward? So having that forethought and planning, I think, is going to be something that's going to evolve over the next uh, few years and become a mainstay. I, I, that takes new governance structures. And, and the last thing I'll say on it is who is most qualified to facilitate that discussion and bring relevant insight? Yeah. I would say people analytics. It should be. Yeah. Yeah. Al, I think we could probably talk all night, but yeah. we probably have to stop. Yeah, <laughs> I think we're. I think we should call that a day. We've unpacked a lot of stuff here, talking about the past, present, and future of people analytics, and we've scratched the surface. Um, awesome conversation. Thank you very much, David Dwight. Thank you for having me. Thanks for doing what you do. Happy to do it again, and yep. and you as well. It's really cool to talk to people who not only have done it and not only think about it. They get paid to do it, and they get paid to push the envelope and make things better. And so I appreciate that, and thank you. And thank you for listening. 
And hopefully, if you like this conversation, you'll hit subscribe. And also, if you have a friend who thinks this might be interesting, send it over to them. And stay tuned for more HR Data Labs at HR Tech Conference. And stay safe. Take care. Bye-bye. That was HR Data Labs. Please visit TeretskyConsulting.com forward slash podcast to review the show, add comments about this episode, or add new ideas about upcoming shows you'd like to hear. Feel free to be creative, but please be nice. Thank you for joining us this week on the HR Data Labs podcast, and stay tuned for our next episode. Stay safe.